I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Milan Cordestani, author of I'm Just Saying, A Guide to Maintaining Civil Discourse in an Increasingly Divided World. And I just have to say one thing to my audience. Uh, when we sent out our announcement that he was, he was going to be on the show, we listed him as an attorney. He's not. Um, not an attorney, but he is a genius. So uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying these little well, these three little words that tend to follow an intense debate are a signal that someone has given up on listening or being understood. Uh, well, they've dug into their position and there will be no budging, an unfortunate symptom of living in a divided world. The lack of civil discourse and constructive conversations motivated the 24-year-old three-time social entrepreneur Milan Cordestani to find or to found The Doe, an anonymous digital publication promoting open-minded discussions and restoring civil discourse. In a world fueled by arguments and outrage, he offers insight and tools to navigate necessary difficult conversations, offering a much-needed infusion of kindness in an increasingly contentious society. Milan has written for numerous online publications, including Rolling Stone, Huffington Post, Entrepreneur.com, Thrive Global, and other platforms. And he regularly covers topics in entrepreneurship, self-help, startup culture, the environment, leadership, and media. Welcome to the show, Milan. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Sorry to disappoint that I'm not uh, also an attorney. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need another attorney, (laughs) at least not today. No, you're the guy. You're our guy for today because we really do. We We do live in a contentious world. Uh, polarized world, and we don't seem to be going forward in the right direction. I mean, you're only 24 years old, so you're going to tell us, we need to know, how and give us the tools to sort of navigate these difficult conversations, right? Um, First of all, yeah. Okay. So why is it so important that we have civil discourse in this polarized world? Well, so civil discourse is this idea that we're having conversation with the intention and the focus of trying to find common ground with people and create connection, which I think is, you know, uh, something obvious that people should all want to get on board with. But it it goes further to say that, you know, if we want to live in a society that's forward thinking and is generally progressive, uh, we need to be able to create common ground with people that we disagree with. And that there is this idea that Usually in a society, there's some amount of shared values, and we should be able to create um, common ground on almost any subject. And and really, the the tools that I teach, you know, they're not um, they're not things you haven't heard of before, but they're diving into the application of concepts like active listening and intention and conversation, and um, you know, these concepts that allow us to be able to be much more conscious in our conversations to to show up better and be able to create, you know. Um, civil discourse. So let's start with some of those specific things that we need to be doing. I think, and not just we, but I think uh, people, and I'm going to bring it right back to this, which is the most obvious in in, in Congress. Uh, it doesn't seem to be happening. So we don't always seem to be accomplishing what we need to do as a society. Um, so I hope some of those guys and gals are listening. I'm not so sure. But anyway, so let's talk about active listening. What does that mean? Sure. So, I mean, active listening is this uh, concept that 
we are listening to people for the purposes of trying to understand their perspective and how they arrived at that perspective that they have today. We're trying to understand people better. And the idea is that when we understand people better and we understand how they've arrived at the perspective that they have today um, and, and, you know, how they have the morals that they have and what they believe in, uh, that understanding allows us to be able to create that, that common ground with them. Um, you know, I agree at, at the governmental level, we should be seeing our politicians representing the values that we want to embody as a culture and a society. And it's really disappointing, even, you know, whether it's presidential debates over the last um, few elections or it's, you know, or a couple elections and now um, at the con- congressional level or even at, you know, state levels, state legislative levels to see how we are just not listening um, and, you know, having the best interest of the people at, at mind. Yeah, best interests of the people. I think that's that, that's well said. So how do we, can you give us an example of active listening? Let's say not necessarily in Congress or our congressional leaders, but what about us? Conversations that, you know, go awry. We don't seem to be able to get someone else to understand what we're saying. Put us in that, give us a scenario. Sure, good question. So one example would be um, thinking about it like in a conversation with, a spouse, right? And you're in a, you start to enter into this debate about some, some topic. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Um, but you know, uh, about who does more work around the house and it turns into this aggressive conversation about who does more for the family and who is providing more and so on. And it, it, it turns into this tit for tat. And what ends up happening in those types of moments is we try to prove that we're right. And that need to prove that we're right ends up completely toning out or turning out, uh, sorry, tuning out the noise of what the other person is saying, actually listening to them, hearing the frustration, hearing the pain and seeing the humanness in them. We lose all empathy. And when that happens, there's no chance of finding common ground with that person. And inevitably, someone is going to leave that conversation feeling like they've lost, like they weren't heard and they weren't recognized. And we don't want that, Um, you know, whether it's you know, in your family or at the, you know, the governmental level, because when you don't feel heard, when you don't feel um, like someone understands you, then, you know, you're going to feel lost. And that inevitably is going to have cascading problems. Um, and, and what I talk about in the book a lot is that ends up with a lot of mental health issues for us at a society level, as a country, um, but also as, as individuals, we end up seeing a lot more struggling relationships. We end up seeing unions or marriages that um, don't last and, it's unfortunate um, that we're not able to have conversations that are much more productive. Yeah, and, and those are difficult to do. I mean, that's a good example, I think, husband and wife, spouses, people living together. Uh, it can even be children and parents. I mean, I can, or a boss and an employee, uh, all of those t- types of uh, different kinds of conversations. One of the things right. is you say you have to be um, open to constructive criticism. So I think there are two parts to that. You have to be open to the constructive criticism, but what is constructive criticism? Because sometimes we get a lot of criticism bombarding Mm. us and that's not really constructive. So we fight back uh, with some, you know, in in anger usually. Uh, So what is constructive criticism versus criticism that's not constructive? (laughs) I think effective constructive criticism begins with making it really clear to the individual 
why you're offering this, this feedback or this criticism because, and usually it's because you want them to improve or you want them to be, to be better versions of themselves. And so when that's clear to the other individual, I think then they're much more open to listening to that feedback um, and taking it in. And, you know, the next component to it, of course, is just offering great feedback because sometimes we offer, you know, our opinions and we think that we're right. And so we're just trying to say something to show that we have something to add. But, um, you know, this is a part of what I talk a lot about in the book is philosophy. And the principle of Stoic philosophy is this idea that you don't just talk for the sake of talking and, you know, giving feedback or perspective for the sake of it, but because you actually think that there's value to be added um, to the conversation or to that person's life. So one part, again, is making sure that it's clear to the other person that's what you want is to better them. And then the second is to actually offer some some form of valuable information. Well, you know what I think is interesting because you're 24 years old and I think, uh, and this is constructive criticism. <laughs> this is, I'm Sure. Okay. I think that there's a lot of your generation and uh, has a lot of difficulty in communication, which is what you're talking about in expressing themselves yeah. either orally or verbally. And so it's very confusing. And when one is listening to someone of that generation, or even I, I notice in emails or texts, um, it, the, the communication is blurry. Uh, and I think it's particularly, unfortunately. And I think it's perhaps, I don't know, it's because we text and email and we don't see people in person necessarily. And a lot of stuff is virtual that you, I'm putting your generation, I don't know, in a, are you, no, a, I you're think a, it's okay. yeah, are you a, you're a millennial, right? 24. So I'm on the cusp of Gen you're Z on the and millennial. Cusp, yeah. I'm actually I'm Gen Z, but I do think it's both a millennial and Gen Z problem and less Gen X or boomers. And it's, um, you know, you're right. You're right about what you're saying. It's, it's a dominance in digital communication has made us less capable communicators, I think, offline um, in, in human interactions and has generally uh, that, that lack of human interaction has made us less tolerant online because there is less recognition of people as people or seeing them as such. And you're just seeing, you know, a profile picture of an image and assuming so much about them based off of whatever you're able to find on that person in that, you know, 10 seconds of, of chance that you give them when you look at them and you see a comment that they left that you, you know, immediately disagree with. So I do think that there's a lot of, um, you know, inability to see people uh, as, as humans, as neighbors, as friends, as family, and um, as, you know, fellow citizens in our country that we want to be uh, creating shared values with. And that inevitably allows us to become poor communicators. So that, and then there's keyboard courage as well. You know, just when you're communicating dominantly online, you feel like you can say anything and like there's not quite the repercussions um, necessarily as there might be or the awkwardness or whatever it is that, you know, the decorum that keeps us having great conversations in person versus um, what usually devolves on social media. Well, I think all the cues are missing. Are there I mean, this is the obvious, but if you are saying something and you're mm. in person, when you can look somebody in the eye or you look at their body language and you respond to that, and when you don't have that, then as you say, you can be bolder, you can say what you want because maybe you don't see how uncomfortable the other person is. And so that, that connects, so you don't get that kind of a connection. And 
uh, because I, I know in your book you talk about empathy. And we just mentioned active listening, and uh, obviously that helps you to connect with somebody. But if you can't see them and you're not in person, really difficult, I think, to be able to do that. Um, it is. And, and so I think at the generational divide, that's the difference in communication as well that we're seeing. A generation that's grown up mostly communicating online versus not. Although if we looked at, I'm thinking, if we looked at Congress going back to that, uh, the, the people who are not communicating well are not necessarily millennials or Gen, right. or Gen Zs. They're, they are uh, baby boomers and even older than baby boomers, you know, the traditionalists, and they're not doing a good job either. I do have to throw that in. So they're, um, right. yeah. So there's an issue, I guess, with all of our, the, the different uh, generations. Um, let's talk about the personal values and the principles which do shape our communication and our interaction with others. Um, wh what happens when we're talking about somebody who has completely different values? We can take a, you know, some of the hot topics today, uh, pro-choice, anti-choice, pro-guns, anti-guns, some of the, you know, how right. do, yeah, I'll, let's talk about those. What do you, how do you talk to somebody who doesn't share those values on those issues. So in the book, I share these examples of people that have inspired me throughout the times in order to provide inspiration for right now when it feels impossible to find common ground with people that we disagree with. I talk about Oprah Winfrey bringing skinheads onto her show and um, the, the importance she felt that that was to be able to have conversations with people that were even racist against herself um, and, you know, what that can do and that, that story is interesting because what happens is they end up coming onto the show a decade later and talking about how they devote their lives to helping people um, change and, you know, become anti-racist. But I, I think right now, like when we take one of these issues like gun control, um, we have to start at one of the, you know, the elements of common ground that we can find. There are kids dying in schools. People are able to go into schools and, and shoot children, and that is really wrong. And we all agree that we don't want our children being shot in school. And so we start at a principle like that, at a, at a common ground value there, and we start to work up from there. And I think that allows us to become really solution-oriented, um, whereas just starting from this value of, okay, well, we have an amendment that is supposed to protect us from, you know, uh, protect us from our own government and be able to have people to go against our government if needed and so on. Like, it's too abstract. We have to start from, like, where is the actual challenge that's affecting our society right now and, and begin to have conversations there. And, um, you know, and, and of course, from there, our politicians, they're supposed to just be gathering the, and representing the voices of, of our communities and people. So um, that's where I think we want to start seeing some change is, is really the conversations we're having and that the politicians are having with uh, with us. The conversations we're having, as you're describing it, in other words, what we shouldn't do, it shouldn't be an intellectual, cognitive conversation. We have to dig deep and, and get into the emotions, as you said. Well, for instance, that that it's a good example. Nobody wants their children killed in school. We all agree on that. That's an emotional, I mean, that's, that's not just an academic argument. Uh, that comes straight from right. the gut. Right. And that's what we want to work with and, or work on, not some uh, amendment that has to do with gun control. Um, because, right. yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, again, that's not to say that it's not making changes to legislation. Um, I, I just believe that 
when we start from these common values of a society, it less abstract, it's a lot easier to start creating solutions. And I, I do believe that, you know, we're, we can, we're capable of being a progressive solution oriented society that quickly acts on the data we're being presented when there's very clear data that, you know, at least in this case, children are being shot in school and that that's tragic. I think another issue is too, if you can come together on what, what the goal is, because very often people have the same goal. They want the same resolution, right. but getting to that resolution becomes kind of all tied up in a mess because they disagree on how to get there. But the end result is you do want the same thing, i.e. you don't want your kids killed in school. Uh, and there are other examples besides that. Of course. So, yeah, I, I fundamentally agree with you. Like that is what we have to do, which is be solution oriented around those um those ideals, right? Because then we start getting into these conversations where people say, well, we should arm the teachers. And then it's like, okay, well, let's, let's go down that rabbit hole for a minute. Let's talk to the teachers. Do they actually want to be armed? Um, and if, if the, the answer is probably no, the teachers don't want to be walking around with guns, then that's probably not our solution here. And now we need to move on to the next one. And that's, that's it. There's no identity to be tied to these politics. The, the, we should all just care about the, you know, the end result here, which is we're protecting the kids in school. That's, that's a must. It's the bottom ground. Um, you know, so we got to come up with solutions. What, and one of the things you also say that I, I really think works very well and uh, particularly in the radio business or any kind of communications business, but you know, how tone can make or break your argument. That is so true. Let's talk about that because the way you say something and how you say it, uh, the words themselves may be exactly the same as someone else who doesn't, whose tone is different and they can't accomplish or connect in their arguments mm. because of their tone. Um, yes. So, you know, I have uh, one of the examples I give of someone who had great or is a great uh, exemplifier of tone is Mr. Rogers on television and how he would speak to children and to parents and, he would just get you to feel some way about a topic that, you know, made you optimistic about the world and, and, you know, would make kids feel heard, would make parents feel heard. And, you know, that is uh, what I hope we should try to embody, right? The having a tone that conveys what it is that we believe and, you know, our, our intentions well to other people, because if that's not being communicated in our tone, if it, you know, we come out and we constantly seem angry just because we're passionate about a subject, then we're not going to be able to convey what it is that we we're trying to convey to the other person. We're not going to be able to connect and we're not going to be able to find that common ground. Uh, and immediately that's where we see a lot of these like public debates at the government level when they're angry, when they're, being defensive when it's about being right, um, you know, you, you can see it in the tone alone. And it's, you know, like uh, at the most basic level, we see this in animals. Like, you know, when we're talking to dogs uh, and you see the reaction a dog makes, it's not to the words that you're saying. They might not be trained on your words. It's the tone um, of how you're delivering those words. And it, it means everything. Uh, that, that I, I mean, that is so true. And I'm thinking of the word uh, civility uh, somehow. Mm gets in there too, being civil, being able to be civil with your comments and your connections and whatever your discussion is. Uh, civility is, is important, but yeah, tone. Absolutely. Um, 
tone, you know, it, it impacts your connections when you're talking to a child or an adolescent or you're trying to give them advice or actually anyone advice, uh, how you present it. And the tone of your voice makes a huge difference in terms of whether someone's even going to listen to you, let alone do what you want them to do. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. So now mediation, you say mediation can make you better at civil discourse, but mediation, how mediation? I mean, there are mediators and divorces and, you know, other kinds of situations. But uh, what does it mean for us? Just the average person mediation can make you better at civil discourse. Sure. So I talk about different ways to find this mindfulness in your life. Um, You know, for some people, it's going to therapy and that works. Um, There's a lot of, you know, people who are, my parents are Iranian immigrants. And I think of like the Eastern mindset, which Western therapy doesn't always work well with. And so I think of meditation as like another aspect and self-reflection. And that's what I talk about a lot in the book is is self-reflection and meditation as, as one of the greatest forms of mediation for yourself to be able to reflect because I truly believe that if you take a moment to reflect on the conversations in your life and how you feel about them and you start to recognize that you feel poorly about them, if you do, um, that feeling of feeling poorly about the communication in your life will incentivize you to care about civility, will incentivize you to improve the conversations in your life to feel better. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of us as, as humans, right, we're chasing, we're chasing feelings. Um, And feeling loved is definitely one of the ones that we like. So I believe civility brings that feeling. So um, mediation, whether it's therapy, you know, literally getting someone else into your life that can add perspective and help you to kind of check yourself or developing an ability to be able to check yourself, which I believe is the most powerful um, through self-reflection and meditation. What about when you're in a conversation and you suddenly realize this is getting nowhere, uh, we are escalating the problem rather than solving the problem? Do you think it's a good idea to be able to step back and say, wait a minute, and maybe, yes. yeah, and then co- come at it at a different time uh, if we're able to do that? It, definitely, yes. Um, there are times when it gets too heated and it feels like you're not being heard or like you are not interested or capable of listening to the other person, that's when you know it's over and it's time to kind of take a, take a break uh, from the conversation and to literally then go and, you know, that's when you reflect and you think of all of those moments you've been standing in the shower replaying an argument over and what you would have said or could have said. A lot of those times when you're standing there, you're thinking of how you would have tried to prove that you were right in the moment uh, rather than thinking about like how you could have avoided being in the situation of feeling terrible and how you let the conversation get out of hand or how the other person might have let it and you added on to that. So, you know, knowing when to walk away to have those moments of reflection are important, but having the right questions that you're asking yourself in those moments of reflection, I think is just as important. And, um, you know, one of the other principles I talk about in the book is when you start to see those moments getting really heated, to be able to ask questions of the other person, to just default to curiosity, to try to understand the other person and their perspective better, usually de-escalates the situation because the other person then starts to feel like they're, they're heard, they're able to talk and you're listening. And for you, you start to get more information. You're getting more data to then be able to form what you're going to say next. So, it, you know, those heated situations, it's hard to take a step back and become slow and methodical, but that is what is necessary in those moments. 
Milan, we only have a few minutes left. So the dough, I mentioned that in uh, the intro, uh, your digital publication, uh, promoting open-minded discussions and restoring civil discourse, which we've been talking about. Uh, tell us about the dough. Sure. So I founded the dough after a couple of years of being a writer myself, writing for various publications, like we mentioned early on. And um, I felt like the topics and the stories that we were telling from our lives were just not deep enough. I say our, meaning myself, and just the media industry at large. And that's not to say that there weren't other great publications that were going after amazing stories and there wasn't great journalism, but it wasn't the norm. And so I had this idea to basically take the ego out of publishing. Let's remove our names and any brand affiliation really from the story that we're telling and just focus on the story that's being told and seeing, you know, what conversations can be sparked from these, from these, you know, stories of our lives. So we would vet people and we would vet the stories that happened to them to make sure that, you know, people could of course trust what we were telling um, or what we were publishing and, uh, and then we would, you know, allow the writer to pick a pseudonym and just share a few stats about themselves, maybe their gender or their age or where they're from or, you know, um, income statistics or their political leaning. All of those are different factors we'd like to collect and, and show. But, um, you know, we would remove the name from it and that allowed us to have really amazing conversations. And so, you know, it, it ranged quite the gamut from college students talking about mental health issues and, and um, eating disorders and depression and anxiety to politicians talking about why they make certain decisions they have or how identity politics plays into their work, um, all the way to parents like a father talking about never wanting to have a child and their wife maybe pushing them to have a child and they still don't love their child, but here's how they're learning to cope with that. And then all of a sudden you see thousands of fathers come and join the comment section saying, wow, me too. And you've given me like really effective tools and hope on how, you know, I can build a better relationship with my child now and so on. So, you know, it, it, that was the, that was the mission. Like how can we spark civil discourse through great journalism? So now tell us, how do we connect to the dough? How do we connect to your book and all the other things? Well, are you doing a lot of other stuff as well? Sure. Um, so you can find the dough, the D O E.com um, where you, you'll find over a thousand different perspectives or stories and narratives from people's lives. Um, you can find me at Milan Cordestani um, on all social media or milancordestani.com. And my book, I'm Just Saying, is available for purchase anywhere where you buy books. Uh, I've recorded uh, an audiobook. It's on Audible and you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all places. Great. Well, I'm an Audible fan, so great. Milan Cordestani, I'm Just Saying, a guide to maintaining civil discourse in an increasingly divided world. Thanks so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 